welcome to Overinvested, a podcast that's usually about pop culture, and this week is about British and European politics, because it's all we've been able to talk about for the past few days, and it's consuming my life as a person who is Scottish and lives in Scotland, and uh, Morgan also is very interested in politics, so we're going to talk about Brexit today. Yes, yes indeed, we are. Sorry for those of you who only tune in for movie news, but... This is all we can talk about. So. And we promise that it will be as dramatic, if not far more dramatic than any of the movies <laughs> we have discussed. Yes. We have so much going on. We've got our aristocrat feuds, got our British leadership crisis, economic problems that I can't fully understand because I'm not an economist, <laughs> the appending apocalypse, Scotland and <laughs> Ireland physically breaking away from the UK and sailing up into the North Sea. It's a lot. Yes. You may hear in my voice there's like a slight edge of hysteria, like the past 48 hours for me have not been good. Now I'm sort of leveling out and I'm feeling a bit more calm. But um, I basically spent all of Friday and Saturday scrolling through news feeds and panicking, as did all my friends. So that's been a good time for me. Yeah, I am not obviously as personally impacted by this as Gab is, but it's been pretty alarming from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean also, especially since I will be spending the next year in England. So I picked an interesting time to do that. Yeah, I mean, I was looking forward to seeing Morgan when she moves here, but by the time she gets here, we may already be re-erecting Hadrian's Walls. So <laughs> she might not be able to visit at all. Yeah, I will see. It'll be, it'll be an interesting time. Oh. Um, we thought we would start with some sort of primary information for those of you who may either have no idea what we're talking about or just not have the same level of awareness as we do about what's going on. It's a pretty complicated political issue, even if it has been in the news a lot the past few days. So Gab obviously is an expert in this as a Scottish person, so she's going to give some backstory. Okay, so the Brexit referendum took place on Thursday and basically everyone voted on whether to remain in the EU or leave the EU and be completely independent as a solo country. And by an extremely narrow margin, it was like 48.1 to 51.9% or something. We decided to leave the EU and immediately the pound tanked in a really incredible graph where you can see just money going off the edge of a cliff. The Prime Minister resigned. All of the leading politicians in Britain were led into disarray. Lots of people started being really racist. It was pretty bad. And um, that's why we're going to have to go back to the backstory to explain why this even happened. Because I've seen, you know, especially like coverage from the US, there is either quite a lot of coverage that's going through various, very serious uh, discussions and implications about why people would want to leave the EU and what might happen next. Or there's stuff like uh, John Oliver's show where he's just like, why the fuck would anyone vote for this? It's really obvious that you should just be staying in the EU because the other option is insanity. So why did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> this could actually go back to the 80s and 90s, but I'm not going to go back that far right now because this is not a history lesson. But basically, in last year's general election, our Prime Minister, David Cameron, one of his election pledges was that he would have this referendum. And that was a way of him persuading all the people who were Eurosceptic to vote for the Conservative Party instead of UKIP, the UK Independence Party, which is kind of a far-right fringe party, which was originally created specifically to get the UK out of the EU, but is sort of now seen as a broader catchment for traditional conservative values, often quite a lot of racists. Like, there's a lot of racist situations going on with UKIP politicians, and they're led by a man named Nigel Farage, who is just a hilarious fiasco. <laughs> He's really offensive. He's very jovial. He doesn't give a shit what anyone says about him. He just keeps failing to win elections, but it doesn't matter to him because he just loves attention. He doesn't really want to do the job of a politician in power, is the impression I get. I don't think before the past couple of days I'd ever actually seen him speak. I think I'd just seen endless photos of him and every single one was just more and more horrifying. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, he looks kind of like a toad. And yes. he always wears, like, because the colours of UKIP are purple and yellow for, like, some inexplicable reason. And a lot of the kind of support for him is like, oh, he's not part of the establishment. But it's like, 
obviously, yes, he's the establishment. He's a rich, white, conservative man who's quite racist and wants to go back to traditional British values. As with many situations over the decades where there's been an economic downturn and suddenly people start blaming stuff on immigrants, he has got quite a lot of support, especially from white working class English people who have seen a lot of financial difficulty thanks to budget cuts from the government, which they can then blame that situation on immigrants and be like, well, we should leave Europe because then there'll be fewer European people coming in and fewer people from outside the EU who are traveling through and whatever. So to kind of appease that opinion, David Cameron promised to have this referendum this year. And now he's had it and uh, he's had to resign and he's completely fucked his career. You know, he's like a traditional old fashioned rich aristocratic kind of guy and he has single-handedly managed to destroy the remnants of the british empire so it's it's pretty the schadenfreude right now is like through the roof <laughs> really incredible yeah the most amazing thing to me about this is how completely unnecessary it was like this did not have to happen at all and within Literally. like 12 hours so many people who voted to leave were like fuck what have we done we didn't yes. expect it to happen right i mean there were a bunch of people and of course these are people who are being interviewed like Obviously, many, many people who voted to leave wanted to do that, and I'm sure have not sort of reneged on that, although we'll see what their opinion is in a week. But there were a ton of people who were sort of like, well, I didn't think it was really going to happen. I just wanted to show my, you know, displeasure with the EU. And it was like, the polls were showing pretty consistently for weeks and weeks that it was essentially a split vote. So maybe don't use your vote as a protest statement when it's a 50-50 split. Like, why? And it's also like, the vote, it's kind of complicated in its simplicity because it was literally just like, if you have over 50% over the whole of the UK, then it's through. And that's literally just what it was. So like, people used both sides, but like primarily the Leave side as a protest vote, but that's not how it works. Like, people don't know why you've chosen something. You can't do that. We have a multi-party system and sometimes it makes sense for you to, you know, if you're in a, in a neighborhood where you know the person is going to be elected that you don't like, and then you opt for a smaller party as like a statement vote. Yes, that makes sense. There are several options and you don't want to vote for the shit option. This one, there's two options and they were basically 50-50. <laughs> people have kind of just like flushed the currency down the toilet. <laughs> and destroyed all of our relationships with neighbouring European countries, potentially triggering a really bizarre immigration situation where we don't know whether like European citizens who are living in the UK, what their immigration status is going to be, what's going to happen to like the millions of British people who are living across Europe. Is there going to have to be a border checkpoint halfway across Ireland? Are they going to move the huge refugee camp from Calais in France to Dover in England, which is the opposite of what people wanted from the Leave campaign, they've literally voted huh? for the exact thing they didn't want as racists. So there's, yeah. Which, by the way, I'm not saying that every Leave person is racist. Like, I, you know, people have voted for that for, like, a variety of reasons. But um, the end result has been chaos. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so why don't you explain to us uh, the third character in this whole whole sea right. of chaos. Because in order to fully understand this, we need to get, get to the root of this conflict, which is truly amazing. And I think not fully grasped by many or even most of the American sort of political commentators who have been writing about this, I think. Right. Yeah. So obviously David Cameron is the central figure here, prime minister, leader of the Conservative Party. Nigel Farage has sort of a disproportionate amount of attention and power for someone who is the leader of a party that has like very few serious elected officials. Including he's, he's not an elected official himself. Yeah, he, yeah, he's, he's just a person who talks and gets put on television. Yeah, th think of him as like the leader of the Libertarian Party in the US. If Gary Johnson had more publicity and attention, if he had more star power, that would be Nigel Farage. Yeah. And the third figure in this is Boris Johnson, who's the former mayor of London. He was the mayor of London until last month for eight years. And he's also a member of the Conservative Party. So what you have to understand about the Brexit referendum is that both sides were just led by really famous members of the Conservative Party. Right. So there were people from all like walks of life and political backgrounds supporting both sides. 
but in the most high-profile debates, you would see David Cameron versus Boris Johnson, who's like perhaps the second most famous conservative in the country. And then you have various other conservative cabinet ministers and so on who are like pretty right-wing. They support austerity measures. They're, you know, fiscally conservative, blah, blah, blah. And then you'd also have like one or two members of the opposition Labour Party. But basically it's Boris versus David. And that's particularly interesting in this context because it's like some kind of, forgive the analogy because I realise this is a cliche, but it's like Game of Thrones. They've just got this fucking (laughs) historical, ludicrous rivalry, which has been going on for a thousand years and is so personal and has led to the downfall of the nation. (laughs) You know, we'll see. Hopefully not. Hopefully everything's fine. That's a bit of an exaggeration. But so Boris Johnson and David Cameron went to Eton together. Because of course they did. Um, Where Boris was two years ahead of David. And just to give you some sort of personality profiles, because I realise you may not be familiar with these characters. David Cameron looks like if you googled just boring man. He's just the most (laughs) boring looking man in the world. He's very smooth. He's got an attractive wife who doesn't really express many opinions. Um, He's a nice family man. I hate all of his politics, but basically he gives a very good front of being a normal, if very posh person. Boris Johnson is basically the opposite of that, despite having very, very similar kind of cultural background. Boris Johnson is like a cartoon posh person from like a Jeeves and Worcester story. He has Trump hair. He's got like silly blonde hair that he recently cut because he wants to be prime minister and needs to look slightly less silly. He constantly says really ridiculous stuff to the press. He had a very specific writing style when he was a newspaper columnist. So a lot of people found him very entertaining. He has a funny turn of phrase. Um, He's involved in a lot of scandals that nobody cares about because he's funny. He goes on quiz shows and people find him entertaining. And when he does something really racist or like cheats on his wife or, you know, is involved indirectly in some kind of crime or major lie, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if he can't do his job as mayor because he's like fun. (laughs) So so like hopefully he's the kind of person who's like good friends with someone who was involved in a major jewel heist. And everyone's like, oh, Boris. Um, and he and David Cameron have this decades-long rivalry. So in Eton, Boris was sort of the showy one that people paid attention to. He was a couple of years older. He was a prefect and a head boy. And David Cameron wasn't head boy. Um, and as the years progressed, you know, Boris Johnson became something of a public figure. He became very rich. He associated with very rich and successful, uh, like, showy people. David Cameron was a bit quieter, had a more traditional route through politics, um, and then became prime minister. Well, first he became leader of the Conservative Party, and then he became prime minister. Um, Meanwhile, Boris Johnson was like, I guess I need to do something really impressive. So he became mayor of London, but that still wasn't quite enough. For the past few years, there's been loads of rumours like, oh, who's going to be the next prime minister when David Cameron steps down in 2020? I bet it's going to be Boris. And then Boris would be like, oh, nonsense. Of course not. I'm really not thinking about that right now. I'm, I'm focusing really hard on doing my duties as mayor, which is like, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then this incredible opportunity came around, which was to lead the Leaving the EU campaign. So now you have a perfect way for them both to be on a political stage as opposing figures with Boris Johnson on an equal footing as his opponent. So Boris Johnson now put all of his energy into, you know, leading this campaign to leave the EU, which he himself had partly sort of bolstered that sentiment in the 90s because he used to write a lot of Eurosceptic articles and he was one of the first prominent journalists to kind of start all this sort of funny stories about like, oh, there's this silly EU regulation that means that all bananas have to be bent at a certain degree, otherwise you get sued. You know, he he wrote that kind of story and um, somehow that's ended up with... uh, Britain in turmoil and Boris Johnson potentially being the next prime minister after David Cameron steps down in October. And what's particularly amazing about this is that you could sort of tell after Leave actually won that they hadn't expected to win and have no plan. Nigel Farage is thrilled because he just likes tension. It's like fantastic. Yeah, and he's not like, in power. So if anything goes wrong, no one's going to be like, oh, Farage did something wrong. Because he's like, well, obviously I have no power. Right. Fantastic. But um, Boris Johnson and uh, Michael Gove, who was the other sort of guy from the government who like turned on Cameron and was campaigning with Boris, clearly like they have no idea what they're going to do. There was no like five point plan for when we leave the EU, like here's what we're going to do. Like they basically now are just like, 
well, um, <laughs> okay, that's great. Like, that, so clearly he just wanted attention for this. And, like, if it had failed by, like, five points or something, they could have said, like, okay, clearly Cameron is not doing his job well. Like, he should step down. This was embarrassing. And then Boris gets the same thing, except he can then not have to deal with this crisis. But now he, like, he, this is not a good outcome for him. This is not great, but it's what he has to, the whole thing is just so bad. And, and you see, the, the things, next prime minister has to preside over the transition, if indeed right. we do leave the EU, because there is a thing called Article 50, which is like the legal uh, process for a country leaving the EU. And that doesn't officially happen until the prime minister is like, we're doing this now. It's like the magic word, because right now, basically the referendum is a glorified opinion poll. It just says that like 51% of the country wants to leave. So then David Cameron's going to retire and lick his wounds and bathe in a pile of money. And then Boris Johnson is going to be like, well, I guess at some point I probably should trigger Article 50. Whether that happens or not, who knows? He kind of has to because like that's been his whole like reason for being for the past year. But then he's like, I don't know what to do next because the country is in shambles. And what do we do? We don't have any like trade deals anymore. Right. And all the sort of like things they were campaigning on, i.e. we're not going to let immigrants in and we're going to take the 350 million pounds we're giving to the EU every week, which was a fake number, and give them to the NHS instead. Like they immediately turned around like the next day and said, well, actually, none of those things are going to happen. So if all of those things are not going to happen and also the economy crashed and no one wants to actually touch this thing with a 10 foot pole anyway, like I have no idea what's going to happen, but it's certainly possible that all these politicians could just sort of drag their feet and drag their feet and drag their feet and be like, oh. <laughs> I mean, I saw someone joking on Twitter where I was actually like, this is very true. Could they not just be like, say they've left the EU? Cause nobody would know, right? Nobody would know no. because I've been like a little unfair towards the leave camp because basically one of the kind of key issues that people don't like is they don't like that there is a lot of regulations that are brought from the EU that British people don't personally get to vote on. Uh, So that is one thing that we will be free from as well as kind of influence from the EU central bank. Although that also means we don't get bailouts from the EU central bank. Uh, (laughs) But um that's one of the key issues. But of course, the other ones, like Morgan said, are immigration, which like, obviously, there's no way to stop immigration. Like, we're already an island. Like, you can't get any more islands than an island. <laughs> right? Like, you can't do it. And also, like, we need migrants to, like, survive because we're a society. It's not like a little village where it's like, well, we've only got one house left. It's like, you need people. <laughs> and also, we've got an aging population and different skill sets. Like, most of the people who work in our National Health Service are not from Britain. And then there's the whole thing with the 350 million, which Morgan touched on as well, which is like, I feel like I have to emphasize this because it was one of the key aspects of their campaign. There was a huge red tour bus. There were big posters. All of the main people like Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage have been photographed in front of these posters, which say, we send 350 million pounds to the EU. Why don't we use that for NHS instead? And um, this was like debunked a whole bunch of times during the campaign. People were saying, actually, we don't give 350 million pounds a week to the EU. It's like well over 100 million less than that. And also we get like tax stuff and back and we get funding for science research and like a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, obviously, we're not just randomly giving money to something like that's not a thing. Like, why would we be? It's like, oh, yeah, it's like we're just part of this club where we just give like 350 million pounds like every week and then get nothing in return. No, obviously, no, that's not a thing. Like, if you think about it for like one second, it's clearly not a thing, especially for someone like David Cameron's in charge. He's not going to be like, I love giving money away. No, I didn't really watch many of the debates, but like in the one that I did have time to watch, people would be saying this figure. And I was like, the people who are in the Remain camp should be just saying that's a lie every time, single time it gets said. And they weren't. They were kind of just, you know, someone would say, oh, that's wrong. And then it would just be let slide. And it's like, you need to emphasize that. And that's where we're at now. Because literally within hours of the result coming through, people like Nigel Farage were going on TV and being like, well, actually, no, that's not a thing. And um, definitely not. And even if it was a thing, now the pound is worth like 90p or whatever. So it's less money and you're all fucking idiots. Well, this is this th- there was something going around with like the, a Daily Mail article that was like 10 things you have to deal with now that like Brexit has passed that was actual information as opposed to just 
like the bullshit they usually print. And there were all these comments that, you know, some other publication had curated from the comments on the article that were people being like, wait, like, this isn't what you were printing for all this time. And like, this seems really bad. Like, I didn't want, this. it was just like, oh my God. Yeah, like, it's, it's also like really important to kind of emphasize the power of the tabloid newspaper press in the UK, like the Daily Mail and the Sun, which are owned by Rupert Murdoch, have a tremendous amount of sway over conservative voters in the UK, like conservative working class voters. And they really tipped it. Like you can actually follow it by city because there's one or two cities in England where basically they, they like just don't sell the sun. Like I don't know if there's no audience or if they literally just don't sell it. But that's places where <laughs> people just voted remain. There was these pockets. So yeah, and I think that's something that Americans probably like, would not understand the extent to which that's true. Um, like obviously there's tons of like right-wing media here like you've got fox news like talk radio etc etc but the like size of the country is such that there's just like tons of i mean newspapers are dying but there's just like a ton of different stuff and the major newspapers etc tend to be relatively neutral in their news coverage and or like their opinion pages tend to be fairly left. <laughs> That's what happens. Um, and like the volume of just like insane tabloid garbage that you get in the UK and like, it's all just more compressed because of the size of the country. Like it just doesn't happen here and it has, and we have freedom of the press to a much broader degree, obviously. Um, and it, it's scary. <laughs> it's really disturbing it's terrifying to think of the impact that that can have on yeah i mean the daily mail and the sun is the reason why there's so many racist old grandmas because they all read the daily mail and like loads of guys read the sun and also rupert murdoch like on a personal basis obviously has a very close relationship with our prime ministers they have personal meetings he tells them what to do it's all very gross um there's been a lot of like really big court cases about kind of media corruption in the UK, which I won't go into because it's very complicated and goes back a long way, but like, it's a fiasco. And there's actually like a quote, which I'll dig up and put in the show notes, but there's a quote from Rupert Murdoch literally saying, you know, I'm against the EU because when I go to the EU parliament, they don't listen to me. When I go to number 10 Downing Street, they do what I say. (laughs) Yeah, which is great. Sounds great. Oh my God. So the other thing going on now that this has passed is that the other major party in the UK is now also collapsing in itself, which is great timing. <laughs> Good job, guys. You want to you want to give a little bit of little bit of context for that? Yeah, really get into it. <laughs> so I think <laughs> this one will probably be easier to follow just because it yeah. kind of follows, I think, general stereotypes and tropes about the way that left and right wing political groups work. So. Yeah. Conservatives, obviously right-wing, Labour Party, left-wing. Like, traditionally and historically, Labour Party was, like, the party of working classes, progressives, unions. And then in the 90s, when Tony Blair came into power, it moved more towards the centre, and it's more, you know, it's it's a bit more conservative than it was before. Last year, after Labour lost the election to the Conservatives, they were like, we need a new leader. And overwhelmingly, people chose this guy who kind of came out of nowhere, Jeremy Corbyn, who... People compare a lot to uh, Bernie Sanders. I don't think that really works as an analogy, but he is a guy in his 60s who has been with the party a long time. He has a lot of links to progressive causes. He's a socialist. He sticks to his guns and he has like a lot of support from young people who've been wanting a left-wing leader but haven't really been presented with one that they like for a long time. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people joined the Labour Party specifically to vote him into power. And for the past year... He has basically been met with like a barrage of people who are at the top end, MPs and cabinet ministers and stuff, who hate him and want him to leave and want the party to be centrist and think that the left wing cannot beat the Tories. I mean, I think it's fairly clear that I have like an opinion on this. I'm not a member of Labour, but I like Corbyn and I wish that he could succeed. But like, it's quite difficult for him to function in that environment. And um, following the Brexit referendum, people are like, it's his fault. Because he was involved in the Remain campaign, but he is kind of notorious for always telling the truth of his own opinion and being nuanced, which is a difficult thing to deal with when the other 
party is just yelling lies repeatedly very loudly <laughs> uh, because like without like people being proper fact checkers you've basically got one person who's being like well you know we'll be super rich if we leave the eu and also you will be it'll be great because we'll get rid of all the brown people and then you know <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn will be like, well, obviously the EU is a flawed system and austerity is a real problem, but it's probably better for us to stay in to avoid economic chaos. And also all the stuff about your racist plans is a lie. You can't fit that like onto a card, right? No. So the whole thing is like, he's been lackluster, does he secretly actually not support the Remain people? And now there's a call for him to be replaced and to call a new election. And like half of the shadow cabinet, which uh, is like the opposition kind of part of government ruled by labor half of them just resigned like he just fired someone in the middle of the night <laughs> and also like the person who's second in command tom watson who's um another like leading member of the labor party he was all this all this weekend he was just at glastonbury festival like up to his knees in like beer and mud which is quite frankly <laughs> good plan good fucking plan you are everyone else is just having a nervous breakdown you are having fun in the rain so well done <laughs> saturday night he was just like at like a silent disco like snapchatting until four in the morning and then the next day it was like well i guess i should go and like help out with my crumbling party <laughs> and so there were sort of like journalists trying to figure out where he was like someone was like following the train that they thought he was in so they could stop him at the door when he got off the train but they couldn't find him and then that's that's where we're at right now. It's been a wild weekend. And we're recording this on Sunday evening. And I bet by the time this is out on Monday and you guys are listening to it, like 50 more things will have happened. Yes. I cannot even begin to predict. Well, the stuff with labor is particularly fascinating to me because I have no idea. Well, the thing with Kerbin is that, like, clearly he was not thrilled about this situation. Like, he doesn't like the EU. I think the last thing he wanted to be doing was campaigning to remain in the eu he obviously he also didn't want to be sharing a platform with david cameron so right david cameron oh, was God. like the leader of the remain campaign and he was like don't really want to do that <laughs> no so he didn't do a very good job i also think that there probably was not that much he could have done ultimately to like make this happen like i think in a lot of ways it was a referendum on david cameron right it's i think a lot of this is being presented by a lot of people as like everyone is racist and they voted because they're racist and the whole ah and like a lot of this was racism but i think what essentially happened was like the conservatives got voted in in 2010 and like there's been austerity since and like they got voted in again last year and have like continued that but part of the a lot of this problem is that like labor has been incompetent the entire time. Oh my god! And it's labor's just... entire opposition has been a nightmare. Like right. if they were remote, if they were remotely good, then well, they, were, they a... have such a good case to like destroy the Tories. Right, and they've like veered further and further to the center. And like what everyone was saying last year was, and I think is essentially true, is that like if they're presenting themselves as Tory light, like what is the motivation for anyone to vote for them? Because that there's nothing there that's appealing. And so people voted for the Tories, which was not surprising, um, except in Scotland. Uh, but then they were miserable because the economy sucks and the Tories' policies suck. But, like, most people don't have a sophisticated understanding of politics, which is fine, frankly. Like, we follow this stuff really closely. Most people don't. It's not a really a bad thing. I mean, it would be nice if everyone did, but that's just the reality of the situation. And so their lives are miserable. They now look at David Cameron and are like, you fucked us over. Like, this is bad. Other people come in and say, it wasn't your fault that this happened. Cause like, no one wants to hear that. It's these other people's fault who've come in. So now you can get rid of them and fix it all. This is a pretty compelling narrative to a lot of people. Broadly, just the idea of change, right? Because yes. it seems like a big change. We can be free and self-governed. And if you're like not being under the control of all these random EU regulations, people voted for that in a kind of general philosophical sense. And also just as a protest vote, not really thinking that it would do anything other than just tell the government they were not unhappy with the status quo. Yes. And obviously labor being inept has a lot to do with the general like progression of these events. But like Carbon coming in last year and then being faced with all of these people who have continuously been saying for the entire year, like, we're going to try to get him out. We're going to try to get him out and having no support. Like 
I don't think he did a great job, but I also think, like, in what context could he have done a good... Like, the whole thing is just a huge mess. And then last night, like, he fires this guy who's basically trying to, like, stage a coup amongst his, like, shadow cabinet people who are sort of, like, his sort of, like, fake ministers for the, like, Americans who don't know what that means. Um, And then everyone's like, well, he's fired him, so now I have no reason to stay. I was like, the dude was, like, planning a mutiny. Like, what else is he supposed to do? Like, well, I guess that's fine. What? (laughs) Like, oh, my God. If he hadn't done that, everyone would have been like, look at him. He has no leadership. Like, this guy's planning a mutiny, and he can't even fire him. Like, there's just no... There's no... (laughs) It's fascinating to see it in opposition to like the situation in the US like on two different levels because it's yeah. sort of like Corbyn is like the reverse of Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush who was like an establishment figure who was clearly incompetent but like had all the support to like a slavish degree of the establishment yes. whereas Corbyn is someone who like probably could do a pretty good job and has like a tremendous amount of popular support but like the people who are in his immediate vicinity who have a considerable amount of power are like he's terrible he'll never win we should replace him with this other person who got 12% of the vote and it's like <laughs> why like clearly that person nobody wants them <laughs> And then with Trump, you can kind of compare that to like the situation with Trump and the Republican Party right now, where it's like this obsessive slavish loyalty to him, even though he's a disaster on legs. Well, right. Like I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, So Trump obviously gets in off the popular vote in the primary. All of the elected Republicans, with maybe a couple of exceptions, hate him. Like they hate him. And he got elected because of the Republican Party. Like, they all like to think that they're completely different from him and that he was just an aberration. How did this happen? But he got in because of the way that they've conducted themselves and all these other things that are complicated and that we don't need to get into. But obviously, he is different from establishment politicians in several important ways. But you see him going around and you can... He says these crazy, stupid things. He's not doing anything that a presidential nominee is supposed to be doing. He's not fundraising. He's not campaigning in swing states. He just went to Scotland to advertise his golf course instead of, like, doing anything that he's supposed to be doing, which then was hilarious because he was, like, in Scotland the day after this happened and gave this bizarre press conference where he said like two things about Brexit and then like talked about his golf course for 10 minutes. He briefly mistook Scotland for Florida. Yes! Yes! I was (laughs) like... And then he's like been doing all these tweets where he always capitalizes the word Brexit in a way that strongly indicates that he thinks Brexit is an acronym. Like he definitely didn't know what Brexit was two weeks ago because I remember there was like a QA and a where someone asked him what he thought of it and he was like, I don't know. And now he's decided it's great. He loves Brexit. He's like, well, look, Hillary Clinton made the wrong call. But like, so you have this madman who is running and all of these establishment Republicans are clearly just in agony over it. And yet they feel compelled to say... Yep, I'm voting for him. Yep, I'm voting for him. Like, I watch Chris Hayes' show a lot, and he'll have them on. And one of the things he's been doing is saying, like, okay, they have this, like, sliding scale, basically, of, like, how how emphatically people support Trump. So, like, um, there's sort of two polar opposites and then a couple options in between. And a couple of them say, no, no way. But almost all of them either are, like, fully on board or, yeah... I guess. <laughs> like, yeah, and, and then people like Paul Ryan, who are like openly criticizing Trump and have or have like a really long history of being like Trump is the worst thing that's ever happened to American right. politics. But they're also like, well, out of loyalty to the party and because I know that Hillary Clinton's worse, I'm definitely going to vote for him. Yes. And then you compare that to an instance where the conservatives in the UK have massively fucked up, right? Like they have caused for no reason this catastrophe. And the obvious thing to do would be for labor to like coalesce and unify as much as possible and to attack them like crazy. Like even if Carbon had deliberately undermined the campaign, like even if all of the bad things people are saying about him are 100% true, like they all just need to suck it up and deal with it and just go after them. And like they're, the whole country is in this like met state right now, right? And this is a prime time for labor to say, like, look at what these people have done. And they've literally been floundering like this for like five years. 
you know, this really interesting, the sort of like two polar opposites, right? Because what's happening in the Republicans is really bad. Like they need to say, we don't support this man. Like even if it costs them their seats, like there's a step too far. But also at a certain point, like you have to have some kind of party loyalty, right? Because if you don't, then you just have all these people fighting with each other and nothing ever gets done. And it's really bonkers with Corbyn, right? Because like the stuff that he wants... It's just, you know, he's like, maybe we should stop cutting money for the poor. And <laughs> like, it's just, it's not like he doesn't have, like, really extreme views, right? He's, like, got the kind of views of someone who was in the Labour Party, like, 20 years ago. Which he was, obviously. He's just, like, remained yes. static and the rest of the party has sort of shifted over. And I kind of feel, like, emotionally and psychologically, a lot of the really extreme reactions from these career politicians now, it's sort of guilt like they're having a guilt reaction because yeah. they sort of know that they've gone in the wrong direction personally and now they've got to really dig into that because if they admit that they've gone wrong then it'll be a personal failing and it'll be embarrassing so they just have to like attack Corbyn and prove that their way is right and actually they need to like find some magical inspirational figure who will lead the Labour Party to destroy Cameron by being really centrist and agreeing with some of his policies. Well, and this is exactly the thing you saw with austerity, right? Like, they kept going further and further to the center on austerity, and then no one voted for them. Because there was no ideological opposition, right? Like, if you just say, yeah, they're mostly right. I think that's a good place to kind of segue into Scotland. Yeah. Because basically what happened in Scotland is that the Labour Party, which used to be just huge here. Generations of people voting for the Labour Party. Scotland is historically poorer and more working class and a bit more left-wing, definitely more like union-based than England. It's also smaller, so like it's easier to campaign here in a unified way. Generations of people voted Labour and then basically overnight they just switched to the Scottish National Party, which I should clarify is not really the same as like sometimes you hear about like nationalist parties and it's basically they're Nazis. The SNP is kind of like centre-left. They have some policies which are pretty left-wing. They're like anti-austerity. They're fairly socially progressive. And they're also like pro-business because they want to bring a bunch of money into Scotland. With that sort of mishmash of policies, they have become incredibly successful over the past five years because they've just been campaigning to the people who feel like they've been left out by Labour. And so the leader of the Scottish Parliament, Nicola Sturgeon, is the only person who came out of referendum looking like a competent adult. Yeah. And Scotland voted hugely to remain in the EU, shockingly. Yeah. That's the really big dramatic thing for me, is um, obviously two years ago there was a referendum in Scotland um, asking whether we should leave the UK and be independent or not. By a reasonably like close margin, I think it was like 45-55, we chose to stay in the UK. Which was actually like a pretty impressive result for the nationalist people because a couple of years before that it was like 10% lower. So their campaign worked really fast. Over the past couple of years that margin is narrowed and the EU referendum is the thing that tipped it over because people are like, what the hell are we doing? Part of the reason why we wanted to stay in the, EU, in the UK is because that means we're part of the EU. Now can we please just be independent and be like Sweden or whatever? <laughs> And yeah, it's and now kind of you've got this situation where like the Labour Party is floundering, the Conservative Party is floundering. None of the people who were involved in like the lead campaigns in England know what they're doing because like they hadn't planned for this result. Whereas Nicola Sturgeon did have a plan. Her plan was Scotland is almost certainly going to vote for Remain. So if there's a significant difference in the vote between Scotland and England, which you can tell, we're going to post a map in the show notes, which will show like a very clear divide between Scotland, which like yeah. all voted to stay and England, which like primarily voted to leave apart from London and a couple of other cities. She's just like, well, clearly there's a huge difference of opinion and we want to stay part of the EU. So we want another independence referendum. So we want to be independent. And also her first move was to make a speech being like European immigrants and, and workers are definitely welcome in Scotland and all this stuff. So... She's been going pretty well. Well, and the other sort of thing we should mention is that, so like, say Scotland leaves, right? Then you have the issue, like, we won't get too into this because it's so complicated, but like of Northern Ireland, right? Which is just, I mean, you mentioned it briefly before, but this is such a clusterfuck and also goes to the idea that like the people running this campaign didn't actually think about it at all and didn't think it was actually going to happen. Right. Yeah, because they literally were just like, they just didn't remember that Ireland is a thing. Right. Like <laughs> no thought about that at all. 
So, like, that treaty between Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland was one of the sort of major accomplishments of the United Kingdom and, like, diplomacy in the 20th century. Oh, they, and just to, just to clarify, because I realize this might be a bit of detail for, like, some listeners, but, like, the Republic of Ireland, the main southern part of Ireland, is part of the EU and is on the euro yes. currency. And there's yeah. a border between that and the north, which is part of the United Kingdom, but it's not, like, a serious border. Like, you can basically just go across and it's fine. Right. And the, like, rules of the EU is that between a non-EU and EU country, there has to be a real border, but between EU countries, there isn't. So this would mean that there has to be like a real border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which is not functionally possible. And the amount of effort it took for them to get that treaty in the first place was unbelievable. So decades of like strife and violence in Ireland, they finally managed to basically calm down and it's essentially been fine for like 20 years, over 20 years. And they just didn't think about that. And then one of the things, like major things in the treaty is that everyone living, I believe in Northern Ireland had a right to both a UK and an Irish passport. Like that was like, if you lived in Ireland, you, you were Irish, right? Even if the island wasn't unified. But you can't be in the EU and not in the EU. Like, that can't... So... But they didn't think about, like, who cares? Ireland... Like, I... <laughs> so, of course, within minutes of this happening, the Sinn Féin politicians, which is, like, the sort of unified Ireland party on both sides of the country, were immediately calling for unification of Ireland, which is, like, much more complicated than anyone, you know... Like this is a, yeah I'm, right. It's like it's like a thousand times more complicated than Scotland becoming independent because right. like which is already complicated, right? But like Scotland, you know, there is like an organized infrastructure whose only goal is to make Scotland independent, and like you have that in Ireland, but like this is out of nowhere. They've not been preparing for this eventuality to happen over the weekend, right? And also <laughs> you have the additional problem of centuries of religious war, which like we also have in Scotland to a much less intense degree. It wasn't like 20 years ago, there were regular bombings. Right. <laughs> and it's just like, I cannot imagine how stressful that is for everyone in both halves of Ireland right now. I know. Like, it's... you know, there's been like a rush on passports. We've run out of passport forms because everyone suddenly wants to get their Irish passport before everything falls apart. <laughs> I think they had to hire like 200 extra like temporary workers in Belfast to like handle the number of people who were frantically applying to get their Irish passports. Because, like, and that, again, like that actually was one of the things that made me the most angry, just because it so demonstrated the extent to which these people had not thought about this at all, right? Like, that's a serious major issue. And, you know, whatever. Yeah, we're in this like weird in-between state where... The Article 50 thing is not being triggered, so we're not like officially leaving the EU. And for all we know, it might never happen. But the impact of the referendum was instant, right? Obviously, like on a social level, there's been like a sudden uptick in racist violence and harassment just on a like everyday street level in real life, like graffiti, people getting harassed, kids getting mocked in school and that sort of thing. But also like on an infrastructure level, now all these diplomats and people who work in the EU parliament are having to pull out on the assumption that they don't have a job anymore. Yeah. The prediction is that it takes two years to like renegotiate all of the trade deals and stuff with Europe. But there's no real sign that they have a plan in place for how to do that. On a personal level, everyone's lives are really up in the air now. I've seen loads of social media posts over the past few days just from people talking about their personal experiences, people who've had to like fire employees because suddenly European contracts have pulled out, people who are now worried about like their future like spouses because you know what'll happen for EU migration. For yeah. US listeners, British border controls and immigration controls are intense. We already yeah. have really strict immigration laws. And like, it's very unlikely that Britain is going to just go and evict all of the European citizens because then our entire society would collapse, especially the health service, which relies on non-British workers. But we don't know what's happening. A bunch of funding comes in the EU. So like science funding, if you're in like a bunch of different branches of science, like you've now potentially lost a lot of different career routes. There was something I saw that was awful. It was like a cancer scientist basically saying like all my money comes from the eu so 
yeah i mean i live with a cancer scientist right now and i'm like what are (laughs) what's gonna happen in our future like (laughs) we're planning to (laughs) to like live together for a long time (laughs) well that's the sort of thing that like i didn't really see talked about at all during any of this i mean i'm sure someone was talking about it but it certainly wasn't like a major thing and i get why it wasn't because the people who are voting that's not what they're thinking about but it also is really important and important to everyone right like that's and that's kind of the problem is that something like money for cancer research like your average person that's not what's going to motivate their vote right like what's motivating their vote is the fact that they don't have any money and various other things are making their lives shitty but like people being able to research on cancer is important for everyone because cancer affects everyone, right? This is just one example, of course, but like, this is the problem with referendums, basically, is that this is a really complicated policy issue and you're asking people to vote on a really complicated policy issue that they're not going to understand through basically no fault of their own. And even the people who were meant to be explaining it did clearly understand it. Right. And then we're just lying. I want to recommend a book which is not directly about this, but which I think is the biggest sort of explainer of what's happening in the UK and the US in politics right now and also a bunch of other countries, um, which is Chris Hayes' Twilight of the Elites. It came out four years ago and I read it a couple months ago and it was just wildly prescient. And his argument is basically that like years and years of elite failure have made the public disinclined to trust the elite right and so then once that happens even if sort of like elite people are telling the truth and like have good arguments it doesn't matter right so that like fact-based logic carries much less weight and then you get into these situations like trump or like this where like i think gove said like people don't want to hear from experts anymore yeah, I mean, that's been one of the big talking points, like, in the past couple of days, which is, in past years, there's been sort of a sense of superiority from Britons looking at American politics being like, well, we'd never elect anyone as stupid as George W. Bush. And it's like, well, I mean, there's different systems at work here. And yeah, clearly, clearly, we're very capable of making bad decisions. But like, also, this has been a perfect example of people making decisions based on a combination of misinformation and lack of information. And it's also sort of like there's no way for anyone to have psychologically prepared for it because with an election, like a normal general election, we all know what happens. There is like a framework there. And afterwards, if you get the result you don't want, you're worried for like specific reasons that you're prepared for. Like, you know, the new Tory government comes in and you're like, fuck, what am I going to do? I'm unemployed and now I'm not going to have any money because they're going to cut unemployment benefits. Whereas with this, it was like beforehand people were kind of generally discussing like one or two issues. And there's obviously people like made their choices based on a lot of different problems. There were plenty of people who were very well informed, but no one knows everything about this because it's too complicated. The EU involves like 27 countries. And then it all just exploded like Pandora's box at midnight. Yeah. And everyone was just like, well, I didn't expect this. Can I take it back now? Yes. Which I think, and we'll sort of wrap up soon, but I think that ultimately gets back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is the fact that this did not need to happen, right? Like, this was a egotistical move from someone who wanted to get reelected. And so he said, yeah, I'll totally do this to, like, placate a small number of people, and then sent the country down this yeah, route it's of, like... classic devil's bargain. Like, it's incredibly Shakespearean life arc for David Cameron, who is, yeah. like... I don't know how old he is. I'm like, he may be under 50. He's Uh, he's, he's under 50. Yeah. yeah, He's got like decades of public life ahead of him. Instead of his legacy being the guy who probably fucked a dead pig, which was like previously (laughs) his thing. Now his thing is like, that's like a footnote. That's like a fun anecdote on his legacy of bringing down the quote unquote empire. But like, it's no wonder people don't trust people in public office or in other sort of elite positions right i mean obviously politicians are bad like this is not news but when someone makes a decision that is that craven yeah (laughs) like fuck him but that leads to this much wider sense of alienation from 
Yeah, and making decisions based on, like, if someone can present themselves as being not part of the establishment, which, like, bizarrely is something that Boris Johnson capitalizes on in the same way as Donald Trump. It's like, obviously, you are the most establishment person it's possible to be. Beyond him and Cameron going to Eden together, they went to Oxford together and were in the same sort of, like, fancy club together, the Bullingdon Club, where they, like, smashed up restaurants. Like, that's one of the things. Yeah, it's like there's all these kind of incredible, like, officially unproven alleged stories about stuff that people did in the Bullingdon Club. Like, the stuff that people do know is, like, they would go and they would smash up restaurants and then pay for the damages. And, like, you had to pay for a £5,000 suit to join. But it's also stuff like part of the initiation ritual is that you have to get a £50 note and set on fire in front of a homeless person. You know? Yeah. But, like, there's a famous picture of Cameron in this club at Oxford that goes around all the time because he just looks so young and rich and obnoxious. Johnson is in the picture. He's sitting, Cameron is standing up. And it's not just them. There's like several members of the upper echelons of the Tory party are just hanging out there in their tuxedos. And like that so symbolizes the whole sort of situation, right? Like it's just, oh, handing the baton to someone else and yet everyone sort of thinks that they change the whole thing. No, (laughs) not the case. Oh. oh, yeah. It's great. It's great. It's been a difficult weekend. And yes. I am just enthralled to find out what happens next week. I can't wait to see what happens in the nine hours between us recording this and me posting it. Like, I am sure something dramatic will have occurred. So... Thank you for listening to this different type of episode. We needed to get our feelings out a little bit. Hopefully that was entertaining, perhaps educational for you. So we had said last week that we were going to do Preacher this week, and obviously that didn't happen. So we will come back to that next weekend. We'll have another episode to discuss, so at least we'll have some benefit to that. Sorry if you were expecting that this week, but events intervened. Couldn't happen. Again, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, even though it was a little unconventional, we would very much appreciate a rating or review on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. Otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. See you soon. (laughs) 